Oh, that the Lord Jesus would be at the center of our vision, now and always. His gracious invitation to us is to praise him. It's a gift to praise him that we don't deserve in all circumstances and in all times. And let's accept that invitation this morning and come before him as we tell each other of his might, as we sing of his grace for our edification and for his glory. Psalm 113 says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let's stand.
let's read responsively from Psalm 100.
reading from Jeremiah chapter 10. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters and the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Amen. We sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. We sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The shines full at his command and all the stars obey we sing the goodness of the lord that filled the earth with food he formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good lord how your wonders are displayed where'er we turn our eyes if we survey the ground we tread or gaze upon the skies there's not a plant or flower below but makes thy glories known and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne while all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care and everywhere that we can be thou god our present god our present god our always present How fun this day is proving out to be, amen? Well, we want to celebrate. I sing the mighty power as the guys just did. We want to proclaim to each other, what are some of the specific things in your life or in our world that God has power over? Let's raise up your voice and let's remind each other of God's power over different things today. What are some of those things? Everything. Everything. (laughs) Love it. Our what? Our health. Amen. Our daily needs. Over death. Our hope. Another school year. For sure. Our finances. Our immune system. Our family. Our grandchildren. Our computers. Our computers. 
and the people to fix them. <laughs> well, we celebrate all those things, and we also celebrate that Jesus has power over death. And so we are going to sing the next few songs that focus on that. And so with great celebration, we ask you to stand.
Why don't you greet each other with those around you? Say, the peace of Christ be with you, because that's what he died for, and then be seated. our joyful worship together by the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to ask our ushers to come to the front. As a reminder, we have different ways to give. You can give in the service with us at the plates. You can give online at wheatonbiblechurch.org or you can send your checks to the office of the church. Ushers, would you please pass the plates? This morning uh, during our offering time, we have uh, some special guests uh, who are going to join us. So I'd like to invite uh, some missionary friends up for us. Come on up. And as they're coming up, uh, just a reminder of a couple of things. If you want to stay up to date with church family news, uh, please make sure you're registered for our new uh, video e-news 27W. Uh, you can scan uh, QR codes in the back of your seats, or you can go to the church website and subscribe that way. But this morning we have uh, Dr. Jeremy and Christy Otten with us from Belgium, and they want to share a little bit about what God is doing through their ministry of Global Venture. So would you share with us this morning? Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you here today. Uh, as Brent said, we are Jeremy and Christy Otten, and we live in the Flemish city of Leuven, Belgium. So we are in the Dutch-speaking part, and we live there with our three boys, uh, Kai, Caleb, and Sam. Um, Jeremy will uh, tell you a little bit about the missionary work we've been doing there for the past five years, but we want to first just express our deep gratitude to you, Wheaton Bible Church. Um, it is truly hard to tell you how much your support, whether it be through finances, prayers, encouraging notes, how much that support sustains us on the field. And so we really just can't tell you how thankful we are for you. A lot of missionaries have a particular calling to a people group or a particular place in the world, which is fantastic. Uh, the calling that God has put on us is more vocational rather than locational. Uh, we feel called to serve the Lord through theological education and counseling ministries. So I teach New Testament at an uh, evangelical school in Leuven. I have the privilege of training up future pastors, church leaders, and professors who are going to be building up the church uh, around Europe and around the world. And Christy is a licensed counselor, and so she does counseling support for some of my students, uh, sometimes uh, because of the Greek tests I give them, uh, but also more generally. Um, and she also does member care within our mission. And so she walks beside missionaries who are dealing with the everyday struggles of living cross-culturally as a missionary, but also more um, dramatic crises as well, COVID, uh, the Ukraine war, or local disasters. And through her support, uh, she is able to equip them to continue doing the ministry that they are called to do and enable them to uh, do their work for Christ in the kingdom as well. It is our privilege to serve the Lord uh, with the, uh, the calling and the vocation that he's given us, and we are truly thankful to you uh, as a church for supporting us and enabling us uh, to do that. 
Now, as we move to a time of prayer, I invite you to, uh, to bow your heads with me, and we'll go before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, creator of heaven and earth, and King of the nations, we praise your name. We praise you and thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your children, called by your name. We thank you for this community of believers with whom we can sing praises together and read scripture together. We thank you for the many ministries of Wheaton Bible Church and the ways that this church is impacting the community and the world. We pray for your blessing on us this morning. We pray for the many needs among us, for those who are sick and in pain, for those who are grieving, facing depression and anxiety, or worried for a loved one. May May they all know, may we all know, the peaceful, powerful presence of the one who made heaven and yet was not ashamed to come down to earth. We pray for those who are struggling with sin and for those who do not yet know you. May their hearts be open to your calling. And I pray for those around the world who have never heard your message. Enable your churches and your missionaries to proclaim your good news boldly, clearly, and winsomely. And I pray for those, especially in Europe, who live in spiritual darkness, who have walked away from the watered-down religion they see and the insipid cultural Christianity, but have never truly heard the pure and unadulterated truth of the gospel. Let the light of Christ shine and the glory of the Lord be revealed in the sight of all nations. And we pray that you make us your faithful instruments in bringing this about. I pray that you enable us all to live and serve you faithfully in our respective spheres of influence, bringing love and comfort and peace in the name of Jesus to all around us, that we may share in the joy of your kingdom now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we prepare to hear the word of God proclaimed to us, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading together from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Uh, It's on page 144 in your journal. So Matthew uh, 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to drink. I'm sorry, something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, 
and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, familia. Welcome all to Wheaton Bible Church. Those of you that are sitting here and I get to see and smell. And I want to welcome those of you worshiping uh, from, the West, uh, from the East Worship Center. Uh, I don't get to see you or smell you, but I'm sure you smell delicious today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, uh, and I want to welcome you all once again. Especially if you visited for the first time, we are, we are here to love you and serve you in any way we can. And today we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And before starting, uh, start talking about this, I need to ask a question. How many of you guys are familiar with that text? Please raise your hand. Um, how many of you guys have heard at least one or two sermons on that text? All right. How many of you guys think that you know what that text says? This is what I'm going to try to do today. I think that it's a familiar text, but it's also a text that I think that sometimes is misunderstood and it's also misapplied. Now, I'm not saying that I'm going to say something that you have never heard before, but I do think that that text sometimes is misunderstood and misapplied. So if you have been walking with us through the journey in the Gospel of Matthew, you know that in the last two chapters, we have been uh, hearing Jesus teaching about the second coming and judgment day, and not just talking about the second coming and judgment day, but the reason why he's talking about all of that is because that idea, that reality is supposed to affect the way we live today, at least as Christians. The picture of what is yet to come supposed to affect how we live here today. And the passage, which is read, is the passage known as the parable of the sheep and the goat. And there we're going to find three things. We're going to find an exhortation to be obeyed, a reason for the exhortation, and the power to live the exhortation. An exhortation to be obeyed, the reason for the exhortation, and the power to live the, the exhortation. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say to that person, this message is for you. Go ahead. All right. Let's get, uh, before getting into point number one, um, let, let, let me just uh, paint the picture of what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about his second coming. Right at the beginning of the text we just read, it says, it shows us most of the things that we are going to get once Jesus returns. So, for example, it says that Jesus is going to return in his glory, which the word glory in the Bible is usually something that is weighty or beautiful or radiant or magnificent. And it says that when Jesus returns, he is going to look beautiful and radiant and magnificent. So, so profound is this image that not only Jesus is returning that way, but angels will come with him. And we will get to see Jesus sitting and his glorious 
throne, which that means that we will get to see Jesus both as a judge and as a king at the same time. See, the way I describe the second coming, it's almost like, this is the phrase that I will use, that is the image of the ultimate party for the saints. This is where everything is going to look beautiful and perfect and magnificent, and it'll be loud, people, loud. Now, what makes this party so beautiful is that not only Jesus returns with all his glory and beauty, but the text says that all the nations will gather before him. And the word nations there is significant because it's where we get the word ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity. What is interesting, though, is that the word ethnicity in the text is not just talking about different ethnicities being before the Lord, but it's a holistic uh, definition of ethnicity. It's talking about all kinds of people and all kinds of nationalities and all kinds of, all kinds of ethnicities and cultures and languages and social classes, all worshiping the Lord together. Notice that in the text, Jesus is the center of attention, not our differences. Jesus is the unifying theme. Jesus is the common denominator. Not who we are, not how we look, not what we have different. Jesus is the center of attention. Now, the reason why I wanted you to hear that is because there is something beautiful about heaven in which we can see something beautiful about our uniqueness and also something beautiful about our togetherness. That has been really important for me to see in the Bible because heaven shows me this picture of a group of people that they do not lose who the Lord made them to be. Like the nations continue to be the nations. The difference, though, is that they're not separated. They're together. I want to stop being who the Lord made me to be. You want to stop being who the Lord made you to be. There's no such a thing as a melting pot in heaven. It is this beautiful celebration of unity in diversity and unity without uniformity. Now, why say all of that before getting into the text? It's because if that is true, and it is, then the picture of heaven says that we have no permission to undermine or dismiss anyone regardless of how different we are. Let me say that again. If that is the picture of heaven, then that tells us that we have no permission to undermine or dismiss anyone regardless of how different we look or how different we are. Actually, what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to confront us with an attitude that some people have when we make distinctions because there are people that are socially and economically different to the rest. What Jesus is going to confront is he's talking to Christians, by the way, is that we have no permission, confront us because we have no permission to make distinctions when there are people that are socially or economically different to the rest of us. Now, if you notice, the text talks about the sheep and the goat. And that's an interesting note there. Because from the distance, in that context, the sheep and the goat look exactly the same. From the distance, they look exactly the same. And actually, in that context and in that time, people were, were usually will keep it together. But at night, though, 
they will have to separate the sheep from the goats because the goats will require a warmer place to sleep. And you would say, well, what, is, what does it have to do with the sermon? Well, everything. Because this is what Jesus is saying, at least from my perspective. Jesus is saying, when I return, even though right now you all look the same, because he's from the south, even though you all look the same, we're going to get to see who's who. When I return, I'm going to make a distinction between the sheep and the goat, even though right now you look the same. And what is going to make a distinction is your attitude toward the vulnerable. And what is going to make a distinction is your attitude toward those that are socially and economically different, especially those that are different or vulnerable within the family of faith. Jesus is saying this is when we're going to see the difference between genuine Christianity and religious Christianity. We look the same right now, but our attitude toward the vulnerable is what makes the difference. So let's go to point number one, an exhortation to be obeyed. Look at what Jesus says when he's going to return, starting in verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Notice that this is Jesus welcoming his people. This is loving and welcoming people into his presence. But then he's going to say, why is it that he welcomes these people that are sitting on his right? Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And now in verse 36. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. And I was in prison and you came to visit me. Notice that Jesus is talking about all kinds of people in need. All kinds of people that are vulnerable people. So for example, the hungry, the thirsty, and the one without clothes are people that lack basic needs. Amen? He, talks, he mentions the stranger, for example, people that are living in a place that is not their home, most likely people that don't have the resources they need, people that, I know, that they know that they feel out of place. Jesus then talks about the sick, the sick, those that need support, those that need healing. Finally, he talks about the people in prison, which most likely he's talking about People that for whatever reason, they are lonely and abandoned and rejected and excluded or bound to something. And the text says that the righteous looks at these people and loves these people and care for these people. And they do it. This is super interesting. Even though they don't know, they do it as if they were doing it to the Lord. Now, the reason why I say that they, they do it even though they don't know is because what verses 38, uh, 37 through 40 says. Look at what it says. It's starting in verse 37. To the righteous, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? Verse 38. When did we see you a stranger and invited you in and needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Verse 40. Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, 
whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Don't you find that interesting? This is a group of altruistic, self-sacrificing people that are doing things simply because they love people in need. Now, check this out. They love the people in need that belong to the people of God. Did you notice that talks about, you use the phrase brothers and sisters of mine? He's talking about poor people, the least of these, vulnerable people, people in need that are part of the family of faith. Now, someone may ask the question at this, at this point and say, well, hold on a second, Hannibal. Does this mean that believers have the responsibility to help only other believers in need? And the answer is, of course not. The Bible is full of references that says that Christians ought to be uh, ought to care for people in need in general. We ought to care for the vulnerable in general. We also support people in general. We are supposed to care for the ostracized in general. But there is a reason, and I want you to listen up, church. There is a reason why the text and Jesus is so emphatic about helping the least of these within the family of faith. And I think that the argument is actually super simple. If we don't know how to care for the least of these within the family of faith, what makes you think that you're going to be able to love anybody outside the family of faith? Listen up. Even if I say that I love you with all my heart, if I don't know how to love my wife and my daughters, you will say to me, you have no way, no reason why to think that you actually love us. If you don't know how to love your own people, quote unquote, how, how do you think you're going to love anybody else that is not like you? Amen? This is the reason why Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, and this has been an extremely verse for me, extremely important verse for me. Paul says there, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Can you say all people? Especially those who belong to the family of believers. If we don't know how to love one another in our needs, what makes us think that we're going to be able to love anybody else? Actually, I have a huge issue when I hear people say, well, I love people outside the church, but inside the church, I can't stand them. Imagine me going to one of you that is married, or one of you that have kids, and I say, I love you so much, but I hate you kids so much. Does that make sense to anybody? This is the same reason why James in chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphan and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God says true religion, if we were to use that word, is not just that we walk in personal holiness is that we care for the least of this. Now, people will say, well, Hannibal, that might be just a New Testament thing. 
That's probably only for the New Testament people in that context and in that time. And I'll say, no, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. It's the same principle that we find in the Old Testament. This is what God expected of the Israelites in the Old Testament. One of the most confronting texts in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 15. You start in verse, uh, verse 7. Look at what the Lord says. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, the family of faith, in the land that the Lord God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Ain't that a confronting text? Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, and that passage, and that sermon was 22 pages long. I got to half of it. And he grasped that text and extracts from it more and more and more and more. And this is the gist of what he says. The most absolute and indispensable duty of the people of God is to give bountifully and willingly for the supply of the wants of the needy. This duty is absolutely commanded and much insisted in the word of God. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more absolute, urgent manner that than the command to give in to the poor. That's Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says that from Jesus' perspective, if I want to really see where my relationship is with God, I really got to ask the question, do I really care for the least of these, especially among the family of faith? These are the guys on the right side of Jesus. But there are other guys on the left side of Jesus that when they think about helping the, the least of these and serving the least of these, they think that that's optional. Actually, I want to make the argument these people think that that's a suggestion. Actually, I'm going to make the argument that they think that when we talk about helping the least of these, this is either socialism or Marxism or liberation theology. But that is not what Jesus says. This is not optional, it's not a suggestion. So I'm thinking about the people on the left, and for some reason, and please forgive me, but for some reason, the image of Rose from the, from the movie Titanic came to mind. How many of you guys have watched that movie? Shame on you. You guys remember, uh, I don't recommend that the younger people see it, but you know, it, it is there. You guys remember after the Titanic goes down? And Rose is floating in that little piece of wood. And then Jack is holding on to the wood. And she goes, Jack, Jack, Jack. You guys remember that? Because she's freezing to death. <laughs> Listen up. And, and Jack is holding on to this thing. He's freezing to death. Right? And everyone looks at that movie and says, oh, such a romantic, beautiful scene. And I'm like, no, he's not. Everything in my head is like, girl, move to the side. 
help out the brother, man. Get him up. See, if I was, I don't know why I was thinking about this. You know, if I was Jack, I'll be holding on to that thing, looking at Rose and say, I love you, but I think I made a mistake. <laughs> and I'll let myself go. You know why? Because helping people in need is not an option. As Christians, we always make room. Even if we get uncomfortable, even if it requires sacrifice, even if we have to lose something, because for Christians, according to Edwards, this is the most absolute and indispensable duty. And I think he's right. I invite you to see how many passages in the Bible talk about the poor. I invite you to see, just do a little research, how many verses talk about the poor. See, Jesus looks at these people on his left, and their attitude toward the vulnerable, and this is what he says to them in verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. I think that if you're a believer, you have to ask the question, what's my attitude toward the least of these? Especially those that belong to the family of faith. See, at this moment, then, I have to, I have to address a second concern that some people may have. Someone may ask, well, Hannah, what does that mean, then, that if I help the poor... I can earn my salvation. Does this mean that if my attitude is right toward the poor, the vulnerable, the least of these, then I can earn the right to be before the presence of God, which it will be salvation by works. And I would say, of course not. Salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone. Salvation is a gift. It cannot be purchased and it cannot be earned. So someone may say, so what's the fuss with this passage? Why is Jesus so strong about this? And this is the part where I need you to really pay attention. Because if we claim to really love Jesus, if we claim to really love, our, uh, love his heart, if we claim to have a relationship with him, we should care about the things he cares about. Actually, this is the way I'm going to say it. Our attitude toward the least of these is an indicative of our attitude toward God, which then leads me to point number two. Look at what Jesus says to the righteous and his right, starting in verse 40. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters, of whom? Mine. You did for me. Notice that it doesn't say you did to me. You did for me. And for the people on the left, the wicked, 
He says, verse 45, He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So I want us to meditate on that just for a second. Because I think that what that means is two things. Number one, is that if you really, really love the Lord, and if you really, really have a communion, a walking communion with Him, then by nature, you will become like that which you worship. We become like the things we worship. We become like the people we worship. If we really know Jesus, if we have a relationship with Him, our heart will start to get in tune with His heart. We will care about the things that He cares about. We will love the things He loves. We will hate the things He hates. Isn't that true in any healthy relationship? The more time you spend with a person, the more time you love that person. The more time you understand that person, the more you start to think like that person. Isn't that true for marriage, for example? You know, I've been married for 22 years. I've been with Heidi 29 years. And I know exactly what to say that that it'll either bring... Uh, happiness to her or just to annoy her you know why because we have been together for 29 years i mean for 29 years we have grown more and more together to the point that sometimes we think exactly the same way isn't that true for any healthy relationship this is what jesus says care for the least of these Because that's where my heart is. And if you don't care for the least of these, you know where your heart is. Can you see how this is an indicative of our relationship with God? And the second reason why I think Jesus is saying this, and he wants us to pay attention to this, is because Jesus identifies with the least of these. Did you notice that he used the the phrase, I was? He didn't say, they were. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was, a, I was sick, I was the one in prison. And I found this picture amazingly profound because here we have a picture of the omnipotent God, self-sufficient God that needs nothing and lacks nothing and yet is so personal and so close to the people in need that he feels compassion when people are hungry, thirsty, strangers, sick, and in prison. It's almost like if Jesus is saying, I feel what you feel, and I feel when you feel. You know, you know where I got that from? B.B. Warfield, which is another theologian. He wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Jesus, and this is what he says. Compassion is the, is the emotion most attributed to Jesus. It is the description of a feeling of inner turmoil, or turmoil, of roiling emotions of pity toward the, unfor- the, the unfortunate, the profound internal movement of his emotional nature. He says that Jesus feels so and so much for the vulnerable that he must do something. Ray Ortland, he says this. 
the most understanding person in the universe, the most uh, natural posture to him is the one where we see Jesus exercising compassion, in which we don't see him pointing fingers, but we see him with open arms. He sees the fallenness of the world, and his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering and not away from it. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Jesus sees the least of these, and he's moved toward them, not away from them. This is why Wayne Grudem says that mercy is God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. All right. I'm about to get super personal. All right. Do I have permission? You said it. I think that within Christianity, there are usually two approaches Two sides of the spectrum when it comes to the least of these. And for, a le- for, for, a, for, a, uh, for the sake of argument, I'm going to call this the more traditional view and the most modern view. Those, those will be the two sides of the spectrum. On one end, the more with the quote-unquote more traditional view of the least of these, when we look at poor people, we will say something like, they're probably there because they did something wrong. They're probably there because they're lazy or immoral or because they did not work hard or because they did something wrong or their parents did something wrong, right? And for that group of people, the solution then is to teach the least of these how to exercise personal responsibility, how to cultivate morality, and how to make right decisions. And to that group of people, uh, that group of people, if they are believers, I would say, you are only paying attention to the sins inside of people, but you are ignoring the sins outside of people. And you also believe in karma, which is something believers don't believe. We believe in grace, not karma. And I would invite you to read the book of Job in which someone suffers and he or she is not guilty. Well, in the case of Job, he is not guilty at all. And I would invite you to pay attention to the life and death of Jesus because he's the guiltless dying for no reason from a human perspective. Then if if a person is in that group, I would say, be compassionate, care for the least of these, and then figure out what the reason, why is it that they're there. Don't assume. Care for the least of these. That would be the more traditional view. The more modern view, on the other end, would be the people that see the least of these, and they would say, the only reason why the vulnerable people are there is because they are victims of society in the world. And we need to change systems and structures and people in position of power. And then they would say, if we put the vulnerable in a position of power, everything will be fixed. 
And to that group, I would say, if they're believers, that might be the case. But you also have to believe in personal responsibility. Because there is sin outside of us, but there's also sin inside of us. And at the end of the day, even if you change circumstances, if the heart has not changed, maybe people cannot stop being the least of these. And if you don't believe that there's a biblical case for that, maybe, just maybe, you should read the story of the Israelites after the Lord gave them freedom from the tyranny of Egypt. God changed their circumstances, but their heart did not change. So what I would say to this group of people is be compassionate. Care for the least of these. Do the things that you need to do. But don't think that the only problem is the problem outside of them. Don't undermine that they, they may need to exercise personal responsibility. So the question for the church is this. How do we learn then to care for the least of these? How do we keep ourselves from being indifferent and making excuses both on the left or the right? How do we engage with people when they're in pain and struggle? Point number three, the power to live it. If there's one thing that we learn from the list of this, for most, not all, but for most, is that they know that they need help. See, the hungry, the thirsty, the one without clothes, they know that they're in need, therefore they long for help. The stranger, they know what it means to be an outsider, and therefore they long to be welcomed. The sick, they know that they're sick, and they long to be healed. The prisoner knows that they're rejected, excluded, and limited. Therefore, they long to find freedom. And I want to make the argument that the one thing that changes the hearts of believers is not that we try hard. is that we remember that every single one of us were also the least of these. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. You were hungry and thirsty and without clothes. And Jesus came to heal you, satisfy your thirst, and clothe you with righteousness. See, you were the stranger. You did not deserve to be before God's presence, and yet he welcomed you in. See, you were the sick. You were the spiritually sick, and you needed to be healed. And that's why Jesus came, to bring healing. See, you were the prisoner. You and I were bound to our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And this is why Jesus came, to give us freedom. How did Jesus do that for us? When he went to the cross. See, because we were all of that, Jesus looked at us. And he was moved by it. To the point that he drew near, not away from us. And at the cross, we see the one that deserves to sit in his glorious throne, the king and judge, humbling himself, becoming like the least of these, exercising compassion to satisfy our hunger, quench our thirst, clothe us in righteousness, welcome us into his presence, and bring in healing and set us free. But he doesn't stop there. Because at the cross also, 
Not only he takes, not only he gives us that, but he takes upon himself what the people on the left side of Jesus deserved. And in turn, he makes of us righteous people. It is because Jesus goes to the cross that we all got the help we wanted. We were welcomed, the thing that we were longing for. We were healed, the thing that we needed. And we found the freedom we craved. So, two weeks ago, um, I was watching this video of a singer. His name is Luis Capaldi. He's got uh, this song, famous song called Someone You Loved. It's a very romantic song, and it's a picture of him singing in this concert. Now, he's got a medical condition. Uh, and there's a phrase in that, in that song that is super interesting. He says, I'm going under, and this time I fear there's no one to save me. This all or nothing really got a way of driving me crazy. I need somebody to heal, somebody to know, somebody to have, and somebody to hold. And as he's thinking, as he's singing this thing, he lost his voice. Now, there's thousands and thousands of people in this concert, and everyone knows that song. So they always started to sing this beautiful song, and you could see it in his face. I, this is what I wanted. This is the support I needed. And then someone puts in this video, that's why I love humanity. And as a Christian, I'm thinking, many of those people, the only thing they're going to do for that man is to sing his song. But not for Christians. Because we don't walk away. We draw in. We get in. We touch. We get dirty. We clean, we heal, we visit, we cover, we love. Why? Because that's what God did for us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are we are aware, Lord, that the only reason why you called us to be what you called us to be is because you did it first. It's because you did not stay away. It's because you saw our misery and struggle and pain and you came close to us. And you got dirty and you bled and you died. But you also resurrected to make of us the people that you want us to be. So I pray, Lord, that you give us minds and hearts that we truly love and care for the least of this, especially among the family of faith. But that we are impacted so much by the grace of Jesus Christ that we don't stop only within the family of faith. But that we look around, that we look in our neighborhoods, that we look in our jobs, that we look in our environments and seek and love, serve, and care for the least of this. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says.
compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Stand together, please. Pardon for sin and of peace that endureth, thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with ten thousand Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. As we leave today, just be reminded there are leaders in the atrium to connect you with groups if you aren't connected with a group. And we'd love to have you be connected with us throughout this next year to grow in community together.
But let's hear what God's Word says to us as we leave. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make His face shine upon us so that His ways be known in the earth and His salvation among the nations. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent.